Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the faces of Ruth Asawa. My guest is Elisa Pichamarn Alexander, the curator of The Faces of Ruth Asawa, a new permanent installation at the Cantor Arts Center at Stanford University. The presentation features Asawa's untitled LC.012 Wall of Masks. Wall of Masks is made up of ceramic face masks Asawa made with the cooperation of friends and visitors. The masks once hung on the exterior of the Asawa family's home. The artwork was the first acquisition made by Stanford's Asian American Art Initiative, which Alexander founded with Stanford professor Marcy Kwan, and which she co-leads. Faces also includes three vessels by Asawa's son, Paul Lanier. Each was made with clay, mixed with the ashes of Asawa, her husband Albert, and their late son, Adam. Upon Asawa's death, by her request, Lanier threw these materials into a set of vessels, one for each surviving sibling. On the second segment, my 2018 conversation with painter Catherine Bradford. But first, Elisa Pichamar and Alexander, after the break. On view through October 30th at the Getty Center, the imaginative new exhibition, Cy Twombly Making Past Present, explores the American artist's lifelong fascination with ancient Greece and Rome. Through evocative groupings of Twombly's paintings, drawings, prints, and sculpture made from the mid-20th to the early 21st century, the show traces a journey of encounters with and responses to ancient Mediterranean art and poetry. The exhibition, produced with the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, includes sculpture from the artist's personal collection on public display for the first time. Plan your visit, learn about related events, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Summer Immersive Series is back at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Experience Leandro Ehrlich, Seeing is Not Believing, an exhibition that comes to life. Unlock your imagination and cast your reflection onto the multi-story building or become the patient in the psychiatrist's office. Add to your summer bucket list and get tickets at mfah.org slash Leandro Ehrlich. And we're back. Elisa Pichamar and Alexander, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is an art historian's bucket list item for sure. Before we talk about the work you've acquired and installed for the Cantor, could you describe what it looks like installed and how Ruth Asawa made it over 20, 25 or so years? So The Faces of Ruth Asawa is a long-term installation featuring the acquisition of her wall of masks. Um, that the Cantor acquired in 2020, and it's in a really prominent place in the museum by design. We want this to become a feature of the Cantor in the same way that we are often associated with Rodin, prominently featuring an Asian-American woman, a Bay Area arts legend. So when you first walk in the front doors and you look straight down, you will see the title wall for the faces of Ruth Asawa, and then you'll proceed down the hallway through the Stanford Family Galleries. And then to the left, you'll turn and you will encounter these 233 ceramic masks that Asawa made from the mid-1960s to 2000. And they're all installed on, on a single wall, I think. They are all installed on a single wall, and they are considered, though there are 233 discrete masks, this is the complete art object. One family member chose to retain a portion of the mask wall for the, themselves. And so 
what you see here is the complete set for our institution that has never been exhibited in its entirety outside of the canter, where they will remain indefinitely. The masks are, are stunning. She made them in a range of clay bodies, so they're all different colors ranging from bright white to terracotta to beautiful sandy beige and then rich chocolatey brown. And they're not in any particular order in terms of where you will see this color. They're kind of dispersed throughout. We know that she originally installed these on the side of her house starting in the top center towards the right. And then she worked outwards and downwards. And so we did our best. So so you mean adding to it as, you know, her life and friendships went on? Yes, exactly. Kind of adding and rearranging. And so we tried to maintain the original arrangement as they were installed upon the time of her death. So we had a composite photograph of the original installation on the house. And I worked with our team to try to maintain as much as possible the original arrangement. You mentioned that the masks are many different colors. Is there a reference to a person's descent or background within that color? Or is it more Asawa was using material she had on Tuesday the 4th and Wednesday the 17th? I think it's more the latter, honestly. Um, There is no necessarily no correspondence uh, between the sitter's skin color and the color of the mask, which I find to be really interesting because clay being what it is, it can sometimes really mimic skin tones. But, you know, Gwendolyn Knight's mask is uh, bright white and her daughter Iko's mask is rich chocolatey brown. And so I think it's just a matter of which clay body she had on hand that she was working with at any given time. So how did you come to know of this work? I mean, when we think of Asawa's, we think of some things we'll talk about in a moment, like seriality and woven wire and things like that. So how did how did this piece come to your attention? Almost sort of by chance. I had just recently started at the Cantor and was working on a rotation of the Modern and Contemporary Collection, um, which I also oversee. And one day on my office phone, I just got a cold call from Aiko Cuneo, who is, of course, Asawa's daughter and was helped running the estate at the time. And she had a sculpture that was coming off of view from somewhere else in the Bay Area, a large lobed hanging wire sculpture for which Asawa is best known. And she asked if we would be interested in showing it so she didn't have to put it back in storage. And of course, I jumped at the opportunity. Uh, We don't have a sculpture like that in our collection. And I have long been a fan of Asawa's work. And especially here in the Bay Area, in this context, I think celebrating her as much as possible is really key and amazing. And of course, Stanford Libraries has Asawa's archive. So there's all sorts of wonderful connections here. So she called and we agreed to borrow the work. And Aiko came down. And they were part of the installation as they, Aiko and Larry and Addie, they were part of the installation as they sometimes are. If they can come locally, they have these remarkable tools that look like large knitting needles that they sometimes help, you know, make slight adjustments to the looped sculptures if that's necessary, you know, as part of the install process. So they got to talking and they said to me, oh, you know, have, did you know that my mother made masks, these ceramic masks over the course of her life. And I thought I knew Asawa's practice pretty well, but I had just moved to the Bay Area. So 
I think that's sort of key is that there was so much that I needed to learn just by virtue of being here, even though I thought I knew what Asawa's work was about. And I said, no, I, you know, I had never heard of this. And they, after our meeting, our wonderful install day, they sent over some materials and I was just really blown away by this amazing body of work that she made over the course of 35 years that she hung on the outside of her house. You know, these are masks of her friends, her children over various stages of their life, of, over, of local legends, other artists. It was such an amazing living document of who was close to Asawa at very, various points in her life. At the same time, I should say that Professor Marcy Kwan and I were formulating the Asian American Art Initiative. We were in the early stages of developing the project, which we publicly launched in 2021. And we were looking for ways to build the collection at the Cantor to support the initiative, which seeks to make Stanford and the Cantor the preeminent center of study for Asian American art at any American university. So in order to do that, we need to have a wonderful collection of this material. And I, I really wanted to make a statement kind of landmark acquisition towards the AAAI, as we call it. And when Aiko and Addy had shared this these wall this wall of masks with me, I thought that this would be such a wonderful, kind of perfect really acquisition for the AAAI, the, the first major one towards the initiative. And so we continued the conversation and then it became the pandemic and we still continued. And I went over and looked at some of the masks in person at their office and uh, we made the acquisition in, I think, late summer 2020. So who who is within the installation? You mentioned a moment ago that, you know, there are California legends, uh, you know, Cyril Magnon, for example, is is there. Anna DeVere Smith is there. There are many Paul Lanier's there. Who are all of these folks? Maybe especially Paul Lanier, because he's kind of extra relevant. <laughs> yeah, so her children are on this wall of various ages. And Paul Lanier, of course, who is her son, who himself became an artist. Um, he's a well-regarded sculptor. He studied at uh, Marguerite Wilhelm Pond Farm. I believe he was her youngest student. We had the opportunity to visit Pond Farm together recently, and that was really another tremendous experience that I've been able to have working on this project. And so he was an essential part of the wall because he had uh, formal ceramic training. And so over time, Paul helped his mom improve her technique and worked with her on, he fired a lot of the masks, a good majority of the masks. You know, Paul always likes to remind us that, you know, Ruth was never, you know, she didn't know how to operate a kiln, for instance. This was really just about making the masks and having the specific accumulation. It, it wasn't necessarily about learning how to use a kiln or to fire them herself. And his work is also part of the installation. But I'll just go on to describe a few other folks who are on the wall. Like I said, her daughters are there. Ruth is there herself. She's uh, up on the wall. Gwendolyn Knight, her Black Mountain College colleague, they, they had a reunion in 1993 in San Francisco. So I believe that's when she got to cast Gwendolyn's face. It's great for us because we have a remarkable Gwendolyn Knight painting in the collection. So there's all these wonderful points of entry also into our collection. Maybe the best Gwendolyn Knight painting. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm so glad you think so. It's one of my favorites as well. 
Truda Germain Prez, the amazing textile artist, also from from her Black Mountain days. Uh, she's on the wall as well. People like Jan Yanahiro, who was a news anchor on CBS for decades, she's on the wall, and she worked on a series of documentaries about Japanese-American incarceration. And and Jan actually was able to come to our opening celebration. We had a couple of sitters come to our opening celebration, and it was just so, so wonderful to see them in person after becoming very intimately familiar with their mask on the wall. And then there's lots of Asawa students who she worked with at Alvarado work, at the Alvarado workshop. So it's a it's a good mix of students, family, other artists and, and Bay Area professionals or arts professionals. And then there's around 30 that are completely unidentified. But we hope that over the course of the installation that more people come forward. This has already started happening where they offer details about their life and they share with us their relationship to Asawa. So this has come through a little bit already. You know, there are some people who I have their names, but even after doing some research, I don't really know who they are and they've come through and they've they've shared stories about their interactions with her, which is really touching. Wow. So to the left of the wall-mounted installation are three objects which the museum is calling life vessels. What are they? So this also came about just through visiting with Paul through the course of research towards this installation. I knew, of course, about these vessels because Marilyn Chase ends her wonderful biography of Ruth Asawa, Everything She Touched, which was researched at uh, Stanford Libraries, by the way. She ends her biography with a discussion of one of Asawa's last wishes, which is was for her ashes, those of her late husband, Albert, and of their late son, Adam, to be mixed together, for these ashes to be mixed together and incorporated into clay so that Paul, being the ceramist that he is, could throw a set of vessels out of this special material and have one given to each remaining Asawa Lanier child. And so when I went to visit Paul, he offered to show me some of these vessels, which they still use, you know, to hold flowers. These are active objects. They're not, you know, not kind of reliquary objects in, in the way that we might think of something like this. These are things that they live with, that they use to hold flowers from the family garden. And they're really remarkable in terms of their different surface effects. So Paul, through these vessels, and then he went up north of San Francisco to a property in Pope Valley, where he fired them in an anagama kiln, which is a Japanese-style kiln that uses the technique of wood firing. So I, I love that he chose to fire them in this way because there's a very ceremonial aspect to wood firing. I also had the opportunity to go visit an anagama kiln with Paul, and I learned there that, you know, I thought, okay, you have to maintain the wood fire when you're wood firing something, but I thought it was maybe once an hour or every couple of hours. But it's uh, it's stoking a, a fire every eight to 10 minutes for seven days. So it's a round the clock process and it involves quite a lot of people. And you load this kiln and you don't exactly know how it's going to turn out. It depends on where the objects are placed inside the kiln in relationship to the fire, what other natural materials are present in the kiln. And so when you open it up after all this time, 
it can be quite a surprise. And so these three vessels that we've borrowed from Paul, one has this beautiful encrusted side of with oyster shells, bits of oyster shell, which are sometimes used in the firing process. And the other one, one is a, another rich brown with some mustard accents. And the other one is a tall vessel that had a slip on the outside. So it's, it has a whiter surface. And so I thought that this would maybe be the only appropriate context in which we could show such sensitive objects. But, you know, the Cantor being an academic art museum, this is really a place where we welcome difficult and interesting conversations about death or the afterlife or the role of art and life. And to, to see that Asawa really thought about, even at the very end, what was the role of art in relationship to herself and her earthly remains, I think is so moving. And, and then to have them fired in a, a Japanese manner, perhaps as a nod to her heritage, made with, you know, mixed with California earth and clay, that is just such a beautiful statement to me. So we place these on the wall next to the masks as a way of showing her relationship to the material of clay full circle. So you mentioned how this work impacted your idea of Asawa's broader, you know, 50-year practice. How did it change it or inform how you thought of Asawa's work? Well, you know, of course, I had been familiar with her looped wire sculptures and then seen the amazing photographs, some of them by Imogen Cunningham, of her working alongside her children in the studio. So I knew that the domestic space was always a, a great sphere of creativity for her. And then I had also read that she was a great community arts advocate, but I, I hadn't seen that real thorough connection in her practice until I saw this object, until I saw the wall of masks because that is such a, a statement about who and what was really important to her, really also shows you her democratic vision of the world where everyone is worthy of becoming a work of art and actually arts techniques should be accessible to everyone. And you know the fact that she learned this technique from a public school art teacher also says something. So once you begin to look at the wall and see everyone that she was affiliated with or knew or was close to, and then you look at those sitters work or their presence in the art world, and then you think about her presence and advocacy in the art world, especially for arts education, everything just kind of comes into full view about who she was as a person and the expansiveness of her vision for what role the arts played in a meaningful life and especially meaningful childhood and young adulthood and the primacy that creativity plays even in everyday activities which you know of course are not limited to art making but of course to cooking to gardening to simply being she really embodies someone who valued creativity to the highest degree the New York art dealership that represents the Asawa estate has very, very strongly emphasized Asawa's abstract work in its presentation and marketing of work from the estate. But Asawa made fairly consistently across her career from the 1940s as early as 1943 on representational work. Does anything about this work help you understand or think through the relationship between her abstract work and her representational work? Yeah, in the sense that I think, as is the case for 
many artists, especially mid-century artists, perhaps they didn't see quite the division that us historians have placed upon them between the abstract and represent representational sides of their practice. Much of Asawa's artistic production is defined by an interest in repeated gestures or really the honing in on the possibilities of a particular media. And then even then within that particular media, the possibilities of just something like a line, right? So we see the line explored three-dimensionally in her looped wire sculptures. We also know that she had a daily drawing practice where she would draw family members, people she knew. She did sketches. She did drawings of her garden, beautiful line drawings. We know she experimented with folding paper and seeing, also creating line right through the creasing and folding of paper and turning it into a kind of sculptural form. And then similarly, exploring the contours of a face here with regard to her face casting. So what I love about looking at Asawa's practice is that she really takes the nugget of an idea, whether it be a gesture or a single type of mark making, and she runs with it. And those, that, that aspect of her career really connects the abstract and the representational to me. That's interesting what you say about the repeated gesture, because it reminds me that Asawa begins exploring seriality when she's at Black Mountain College, which, of course, is way before when, you know, kind of New York sculptors, you know, big male minimalists make, make seriality a trademark of what they do almost, almost, not quite, two decades later. Are you arguing for or thinking through a relationship between the seriality of, say, her print work from Black Mountain College when she was also making figurative work and kind of the repeated gesture of one head after another 233 times? <laughs> yeah, I think that there's, you know, absolutely something to be said there about the accretion of that repeated gesture and what's possible when you really work at something. She has this great quote that I'll just paraphrase that she essentially says that sculpture is like farming. If you just keep at it, if you keep doing it, a lot can happen. And she also has another wonderful quote about using the small bits of time that are given to you in life that some, sometimes we don't all have the luxury of having gigantic blocks of time to do something creative. And that kind of statement gives us hope for those of us who live very chaotic, busy lives where sometimes maybe all that you have is 10 minutes or 30 minutes here and there. But she was saying even back then that that's all you need, that it's really about the accretion of time and the accretion of gesture. And you put those things together and amazing things can happen. So, you know, she's really taught me a lot over the course of working on her life and this installation about how to use one's time, how to think creatively, and all of the ideas that we might have about art making or what constitutes it. She challenges them in many respects and offers really wonderful solutions for how to get things done, to be honest. This is not the only work or series of works in which she made heads. She made a series of heads for a parade in San Francisco in 1982, for example. There are, if uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, but it, she made a Japanese-American internment memorial for San Jose, and I'm pretty sure that work includes heads too. You know, is there a relationship between these heads and those? I mean, are, are there figures that recur or might? 
you know, this is an aspect that I'm still really looking to dive more deeply into in Stanford Special Collections, which holds all of Asawa's papers, uh, which is another reason why we think the Cantor is such a great home for this work. I have the same inclination of thinking that there is a connection between these large float heads that she made, right, for various parades, and then these faces that she casts from live models. But exactly what the connection is, besides the fact that she made a, one, a, a float head of herself, and she also has a mask of herself on the wall. Beyond that, I still need to do a little bit more digging, but I hope that I'm able to do that, and then the result of that research can be part of a future publication specifically about this wall. You mentioned the Asawa Papers at Stanford University Libraries. Stanford began acquiring Asawa's papers in 2007. The acquisition progress continued for at least a decade and may still be underway. We will have a link to the papers and to the finding aid on the show page on onmanpodcast.com. Finally, will this installation be up for 12 weeks or should we expect to see it for a good long while? I think that you should all expect to see it for a very good long while. It is an indefinite or ongoing or long-term, however you'd like to think of it, installation that's in a very prominent part of the canter. When you walk through our front doors and you look straight back, you will see the title wall graphic for the faces of Ruth Asawa. And it is in a major convening space right outside of our auditorium. And it's actually long been a kind of dead space. It's, it was difficult to put works there because of the light levels and the foot traffic that we didn't really showcase much and it was sort of a missed opportunity. And then when we acquired these, the masks just seemed to fit absolutely perfectly in this particular space. And it's one that's very accessible, that's easy to find. And so I hope that this installation becomes as much of the Cantor's, part of the Cantor's identity as our Rodin collection, for instance. Uh, I hope that it's something that comes to be as immediately associated with the Cantor and that people come specifically to see it. Elisa Pitchamar and Alexander, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists working across a variety of media. Through the artists' distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shaped the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Women Painting Women, on view May 15th through September 25th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Women Painting Women features 46 female artists who choose women as subject matter in their works. This presentation, international in scope, includes evocative portraits that span the late 1960s to the present. All place women, their bodies, gestures, and individuality at the forefront, conceiving new ways to activate and elaborate on the portrayal of women. The artists highlighted in the exhibition use painting and women as subject matter and range from early trailblazers like Alice Neal and Emma Amos to emerging artists such as Jordan Castile and Apollonia Sokol. Women Painting Women at the Modern through September 25th. 
Welcome back. Next up, my 2018 conversation with Catherine Bradford. This summer, the Portland Museum of Art, the one in Maine, is presenting Flying Woman, the paintings of Catherine Bradford, the first solo museum survey of Bradford's career. It was curated by Jamie D. Simone and is on view through September 11th. The segment you're about to hear was taped on the occasion of Focus, Catherine Bradford, at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Catherine Bradford, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. What about people in water, whether they're swimmers or swimming or not, is interesting to you? Well, I think of water as very close to paint. As I was stroking on the paint years ago, it looked like water. It looked like light bouncing off the surface of water, which is one way to depict water. So I started out as an abstract painter, but seeing the surface of my paintings look like the surface of water gave me the idea of putting things in it. And naturally that might be boats or people. So that's how it started. But then I realized with water, there's a lot of transparency and layering. Looking through the water is sort of visually fascinating to me. And the cropping, you can take a figure and not put in the feet. It sort of anchors it into the painting. And it's a great metaphor, plunging, navigating, diving. It, it seemed to work as a way to make a visual statement. One of the things I've, I've noticed in your paintings that now I'm thinking about in, in the context of water is that the figures in your paintings often seem to be light sources. You know, light doesn't necessarily come from beyond beyond the scene you've painted. The figures themselves often seem to provide the light in the canvas. Is that your intent, or is that just a product of playing with the colors of skin against 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 water? You know, no one's directly pointed that out before. And I think it's absolutely true because a lot of my scenes are swimming at night. That's, that's a favorite situation. Sometimes the painting starts out light, but then it gets darker and darker. And I, I love the thought of the ocean at night and people in it. Not that I actually do that, but I think it's <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of wonderful to think about. Not too hard, I guess. You know the trouble with making the people the light source, which I do. They're they're kind of some of them even have halos around them. Is that I'm stuck with making the people Caucasian, and I've realized in the past years or so that. Somehow I've got to solve that and have a more variety of skin color. But I, I've done a lot of paintings, as you pointed out, of night skies with kind of magenta swimmers in them. Yeah, your skin tones vary, but, but, but when they, they vary, they often kind of vary toward the reddish. You know why? I love that color. <laughs> They kind of take on a Nathan Oliveira like to go to go way back in the 20th century painting canon. They kind of take on a, a, a Nathan Oliveira esque multitude of hues within a single figure. 
but but also you're absolutely correct the the light in my paintings is very important and often i stop the painting when i feel i've gotten a certain light even though the rest of it may appear underdone or even unfinished if i like the light in it i'll stop the painting so the, the conversation about light and color and light sources within a painting and and maybe they're not being obvious or 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 or, or being held within the painting itself rather than than coming from outside the scene strikes me as something that Fauvist painters would have discussed in Collioure in 1905 and 1906 and such. Are you were you interested in Fauvism? Was it a motivating thing? Well, I I love a lot of color in a painting. I, I get restless when the painting doesn't explore in that direction. I can see in an instant if an artist uses color, and a lot of artists don't. And people talk about who's a colorist and who isn't, but to me it's just wanting to explore and celebrate one color next to another which which I just think is a great thing to do as a visual artist. Does it matter if the color is true to the value of something we expect the color to have? I mean, so, you know... No, the... no, like, like the Fovis. I mean, I saw them, like that wonderful green stripe down the head of, is it Madame Matisse? Amelie Matisse, yes. I mean... That's endlessly fascinating that he did that. Good for him. What a radical step. And that's the kind of thing I admire. I, I suspect strongly that you've made a painting about Matisse's liberation of color, Red Studio Brooklyn from 2016. I imagine that's a painting informed by Matisse's Red Room. Well, certainly by the time I finished that painting, I thought, oh, my goodness, here's a studio, and it's entirely red, It's di but it's, I wanted to update it. It's clearly not Matisse's studio. It doesn't have any paintings on the wall, and it's got a big industrial building window, which you see all over art communities that use repurpose factories and mills and stuff as studios. A perverted grid. The windows are a perverted grid. Perverted? Well, it's not a true grid. It's a, you know, you have, you have let it slouch and sit and stumble into place. Well, what's interesting to me about that window is that you can see outside. You can see a little bit of light in the distance. And that's a feeling I've had many times being in my studio at night and realizing that I'm alone with my work. I'm kind of in my own world, and but there is a real world outside the window, beckoning or not. I, I wandered away from bathers and water because Matisse leads me into places and I'm powerless to resist. But how long have you been painting swimmers? Do you remember when when the swimmers and bathers emerged into the work? I don't because it was slow. I think I did it tentatively at first. It wasn't until 2016, really, when I had a solo show at Canada Gallery in New York City that the entire show was about. You know, I don't use the word bather. It was the entire show was figures 
in relation to water. I don't use the word bather because that seems like another century, the idea of people bathing at beaches. I don't think we do that. I mean, that's that's an interesting and grounding point in that the bathers tradition is rich throughout much of particularly French art history, right through Matisse and Picasso and probably later. And in recent years, it's been photographers such as Reniki Dykstra or Richard Mizrak who have who have picked it up most. Were you interested in the bather tradition or was did you did it work its way into the paintings? more as, you know, swimmers one might see off of the New York coast? I, I think that the second one, I think the bather tradition irritates me a little bit because the those French painters that you mentioned, many of them had nude women. They, they do a beautiful seaside scene and then the nude women would be added. They'd be kind of cavorting. And I saw that as using the female as kind of a symbol of natural mother nature. The, you know, again, taking the woman's body and using it for the male gaze. And as a woman making swimmer paintings, I feel that I am in the water with my figures. I'm not looking at them. It's my experience being a swimmer is what I'm talking about. What's, you know, one of the things that's interesting about that in, in terms of your thinking of yourself as being there with them is that when we are in water and we see other things in water, like bodies, the, the edges are soft, the, the, the figures become in, indistinct and, you know, not quite lumpen, but, you know, you lose... The ability, because of the way light moves through water, you lose the ability to see a clearly defined figure and, and the thing becomes more visually rounded. And and your swimmers are all visually rounded. You know, you're not painting true to anatomy. Oh, I like that phrase, visually rounded. Sometimes I say economical. In the show in Fort Worth, I have a painting called Underwater Overwater. And it's two figures. One of them you can see clearly at the top of the painting has a diving mask on. But then maybe on second glance, you see there's a second figure that's actually swimming through the water. And that was an important moment to achieve that. It's really an outline, a kind of lumpy outline of a swimmer. But you have to believe that you're looking through the water in order to see that person. It's more about how it feels to be submerged and navigating underwater. Rather than a description, I'm trying to give you the, the tone of what it's like to be underwater. There's a painting in Fort Worth titled Beachcomber, which features a, a figure on a pale pink ground, apparently bending over, although if it weren't for the title of the painting, you could also read the figure's activity as, as diving. And the water is a, a light, bright purple. Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And at the risk of phrasing the question awkwardly, what gave you motivation or or permission 
to make the sea or the lake or whatever it is purple? Oh, I, you know, I didn't even think of it as permission. I mean, purple is just a great color. I, I love the range of purple, pinks, blues. Blue in the underpainting, yeah. Yeah, and I think the challenge with that painting was what you see is two legs, a bathing suit, and an arm. That's all. So my question to myself was, do I need to put in more? Is this enough? Will, will the viewer understand the body language of this beachcomber? It's a, it's a painting that seems, to me anyway, to be full of, of art history references, in addition to kind of the, the freedom of the Fauve palette, the freedom to make anything you want, any color you want. There are rocky cliffs at the top of the painting that seem kind of straight out of Courbet. Do you think about, are you interested in, do you care about art historical references such as that? Well, I can't say I was thinking of Courbet, but I think when I stepped back and looked at the top, it was satisfying to me. Perhaps because I had seen paintings where brushstrokes suggested landscape. You know, I just thought of this great Matisse painting of a woman and she, and she's striding forth in water and the blue blue paint is sort of bubbling around her legs. Do you know that one? I think it's in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Oh, I do know on, on Bather, the, the the painting on a blue background. It's so good because it's very brief, but the relation between the figure and the water is just right. You, you feel the body is stopped a little by the water, but also you, you feel that paint, that it's, the body is stopped by the paint as well as by the water. I, I love that painting. I've often wished I could do something like that. It is a really mysterious painting. Uh, the body is is obviously a body, but the torso and and the head are are shapes rather than forms. Somehow the water seems to jump up against the picture plane, even though we see breaking water around the figure's legs. You know, it's not an abstract painting, but it's in that time when Matisse is beginning to move in that you know, toward that willingness to see how far he can wander, you know? <laughs> yes, and it's almost a drawing. He, he's using black outlines and not conforming to them much. And that moment that you just talked about where the water is breaking around the legs, I think has got such wonderful visual tension that he didn't have to do much more to make it an exciting painting. No, no, it's a pretty it's a it's a, a pretty wild thing, almost minimal. The last painting of yours I wanted to ask about is a couple couple years old. It's Surfer from 2015. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com of course. And it's a painting that made me wonder when in your process of making a painting the figures come into it. Surfer is a painting that you know, one way to read it is as it's as a as an update of of Rothko. It it has some some hovering patches of color that only when one sees the figures do those patches of colors 
read as see and surf. So I was wondering when the people come into it. I think your your take on this is absolutely right because the people were almost an afterthought or the surf was almost an afterthought. I had to balance that. And the use of Rothko's color fields, his sort of transparent, light-filled planes of color are something that I like and I use. And I and I'm often think how Rothko worked very hard to rid his paintings of subject matter like people. He wanted the purity of a light a light filled color. That's all. And I'm turning it back to being sky, water, surf. Do you think he'd be outraged at me? <laughs> I'm not a Rothko expert, but my my suspicion is he and many of his colleagues would be perplexed that a painter would feel the need to add figures to a perfectly good painting. <laughs> Except his friend Milton Avery, who did just that. And I think they were okay with each other's work. So this surfer painting maybe has a lot to do with Milton Avery's divisions of sky and land and water. The people in the surfer painting are very small. So as you said, you, you notice them secondly, maybe. And also that little surfer figure was kind of found. It was an awkward person in a bathing suit that looked like it might be on a on a surfboard. So I painted in the surfboard after I saw the figure. Were the figures then the last thing that you painted except for the surfboard? No, I think there were a lot of figures and I started editing them out and got it down to maybe three. Or I found the surfer one, I put the surfboard in and then maybe put added some more. I was pleased at the interest that painting got from surfers because I'm not a surfer and I've actually never surfed. But I hope that was somewhat convincing. The very last thing I wanted to ask about, as opposed to the last painting I wanted to ask about, we've been talking a lot about how you put people in water. I don't know what you're showing at Prospect 4 in New Orleans later this year, but there's given recent history, a, a certain context to people being in water in New Orleans. Does that interest you, concern you, engage you? You mean the flood, the catastrophe yeah. part of it? Yeah. I was also thinking of that with my recent show in Texas, that maybe having water is not a happy sight at all. Yes, that's something to think about, the role of water as disaster. Well, I did do a painting called Fear of Waves that has one side of the painting is waves rolling in and the other side is lots of people running away from the waves. It's not that realistic. I think it's more about fear than it is about water or waves. But I, I think there is an aspect of people being in water that is dark 
there's a dark, and that's probably good because I don't want to do paintings of leisure time. I want it to be a larger, more universal theme, maybe even epic. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a very cool painting. It's an it's aqua waves crashing into into water with people with arms splayed, and you can't quite tell except for the maybe the title of the painting if they're at play or if the situation is of concern. Right. What one writer said she could hear the squeals from the people when she looked at the painting that there was a little bit of sound for her coming from that painting. That's a neat idea. Catherine Bradford, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.